Then I'm Sandy McPherson, founder of Quib. And I'm Anna Marie Clifton, product manager at Yammer. And this is the Clearly Product Book Club podcast. This episode, we're talking about Never Split the Difference, Negotiating as if Your Life Depended on It, written by Chris Voss, chief hostage negotiator for the FBI, written in 2016. We chose this book because negotiation, the art of reaching an agreement, is one of the core competencies of product management. With that, let's jump into our discussion. Great. So I really liked this book. One sort of overarching comment that will sort of help frame my first thoughts is that there's a lot of tips and tricks and tactics. I really enjoyed that part of the book. I thought it was really actionable. But at the same time, I was finding that as I was thinking about how we would talk about this book today, that format makes it a little bit difficult to talk about overarching big ideas that we liked and how they applied to our lives and our careers. Hmm. So with that said, (laughs) I've tried to keep my other comments more high level and overarching versus just like the equivalent of the button should be orange. But I did want to talk about one because there was one that I was like, oh yeah, that thing, that tactic, I do that all the time. And that is mirroring. It's one of these things that I'm an introvert, worked for the government for a while, did a bunch of like science stuff before moving to the Valley and starting my company. And so I had to learn a bunch of the skills around doing that sort of on the fly. And as soon as I got here fairly recently. So with mirroring, I thought it was really, I find it really powerful today. I basically do it in every meeting and I sort of like trained myself early on. It felt like a little bit clunky at the beginning. I guess I should backtrack a little bit. What is mirroring, Sandy? (laughs) (laughs) My next question. So mirroring is in a physical sense, you can physically mirror someone, you can verbally mirror someone. So physical mirroring is where you copy their body language or you look for them mirroring you as well. So someone can mirror your body language, you can mirror them. Um, A bunch of it is subconscious when there's someone who we respect or want to engage with or uh, have some sort of like a positive sentiment towards them. The, our natural reaction is to physically mirror that person. So if they like touch their hair, then you do the same thing. Mm-hmm. If they cross their legs a certain way or shift their body weight, then you'll do the same thing. And then there's also verbal mirroring, which is where you literally repeat the, the sort of the quick tip is to copy um, and repeat back the five final words that someone has said. Mm-hmm. And the idea of that approach is to get them, you're basically confirming what you heard and it also incites the other person to sort of continue the thread mm-hmm. that they that they started Well, it's with. also a question, he says, to, to start to say, I'm sorry, last three, five words you said, question mark? Yeah, exactly. And then they yeah. will like pick up that thread and like continue yeah. that conversation. Yeah, so those are the two types of mirroring. I wanted to, yeah, for my first point, I was, I wanted to talk about the physical mirroring. And then the second point that I wanted to talk about for these like sort of tips and tricks, physical stuff is voice. Hmm. But before we get into that, I'm curious your thoughts on mirroring the like physical mode of mirroring. Yeah, yeah. This is the first time I've ever read about mirroring verbally, mm. but I've thought a lot about physical mirroring. And I, I feel like that's something that I've been taught and I've absorbed even from like probably high school on. I've been sure. thinking consciously about this. Um, I think that's something that we do a pretty good job of, of understanding about communication, but not the vocal one. That was a new that was new for me. Yeah, me too. And again, I didn't I, I don't want to I don't know if you have that as one of your points later, but it wasn't maybe. one that I like. Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> okay. So then the other part of these like physical tips and tricks that I really liked, yeah, was the the voice part. And so he talks about how when you're negotiating with someone, um, the tone of your voice is actually really important and you should what does he call it? The like 
DJ voice. Late night radio DJ or something. And so it's like this calm and cool and collected. With Delilah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And then, God, I'm like shaken to the core after that. So he talks about that. He talks about this slow, steady, super chill kind of a voice. And then he also speaks to using downward inflection, Mm -hmm. which again is one of these things that I was like, yes, okay, I like do that. I try to do that like fairly often. I recognize that like that is powerful and good. But one of the things that I also sort of learned in working on downward inflection in the Bay Area, everybody in the Bay Area, they always talk like this and they keep Uh. going up and they keep going up and they up and they up forever and ever. (laughs) Um, And I remember when I first moved here, I was like, oh my God, like how do these people have normal conversations and how do they have any understanding of what inflection means Mm. or voice intonation? Because everybody just keeps going up and they keep going up forever. And like I've had conversations with dudes where I'm like, you have a very impressive vocal range, (laughs) which I've been able to determine after like a minute of talking to them because they do it in like one sentence. Yeah. I found that, yeah, when when I moved here, I definitely like was trying to like, yeah, learn the like ways of the world here. Mm -hmm. That was one thing that I recognized like, oh shit, Sandy, like don't ever do that. Like Mm -hmm. don't ever, because it doesn't, it doesn't lend itself well to this like, I am certain and sure and know what I'm Mm -hmm. speaking about due to a strong use of downward inflection. And But have you used these mirroring tactics uh, before or after reading this book in any kind of negotiation situation or any, any general conversation? Have you Do you find yourself consciously doing this verbal mirroring or doing this late night DJ voice or yeah. those kinds of... Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no. So these are the two that like when I read these two tips in the book, I was like, okay, cool. Done. Like, got those. From before or now yeah. that you've read it? Okay. Yeah, yeah, from before. Those are the two that I was like, oh, like, mm-hmm. I can skip this part because I, like, know what this is and the power of this. Hmm. Yeah. So I think that, and they're, and they're also, like, ones where I've found to actually be, like, so, for example, for me with the, like, physical mirroring thing. So in my sort of day-to-day, I, like, interact with a lot of people for, like, I'll meet other founders mm-hmm. or meet, like, product people and I'll meet them for the first time and then maybe we'll meet again, like, in a year from now or mm-hmm. something like that. Mm -hmm. or at an event or something. And so I don't have a lot of people who I see like every day. Mm -hmm. And so I am like super conscious of mirroring and I'll like watch them and like Mm -hmm. try to understand like, what are they feeling about me right now? Are they mirroring me? Mm -hmm. How are they like, are they in a good place right now with me or not? Mm -hmm. And then I'll test them a little bit. I'll like do some things to see like, are they gonna mirror me back? So I've been doing that for like a long time. And then with the downward inflection, I think that's also part of, yeah, like being a lady is Mm -hmm. you're always sort of like, there's a like women upspeak yeah the upspeak and the like asking questions versus making statements and so that's something else again that I was conscious that I was potentially biased toward doing for the past few years I've been like that's like something that I think of is like okay Sandy like don't do that do this yeah I found I've been doing that a lot with the downward inflection where I noticed that if I've ever an environment where I don't feel like I'm in a lot of control Mm -hmm. or I don't want to if, even if I'm asking for something, like I'm asking someone else to do something, like even if it's like a travel agent and I'm like looking for a flight on the phone, or if it's someone where like, hey, you know, we, we, we need to do this because like, can you can you help me with this? Yeah. Can we? But like, no, like we actually need to deploy today and like I need you to like put that down and like go work on this. And that's actually like really, really urgent right now. Um, and so finding ways I've actually been practicing with wait staff or oh, nice. with other like customer service kind of environments where I'm normally like, and is it okay if I get the French fries? <laughs> <laughs> like, do you have sweet potato French fries? Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. I go all the way up. And so I'm, tra- 
practicing just like there's no need for that it doesn't make anyone feel any better but it is such a like a natural default to go back to when i've had like really important negotiations coming up on the calendar i've done exactly what you just mentioned which is practice in real life mm -hmm. the coffee shop guy yep the like delivery person like there's all of these people i remember even like i would get on the phone and i was like oh i should probably try to like renegotiate my like sell contract oh yeah <laughs> like just yeah. for fun to yeah. like practice yeah. all of this stuff that I knew I would be doing soon. And so I think there's like a lot of these, when you think about whose client are you in mm -hmm. your like personal life, there's probably like plenty of people with 1-800 numbers that you could call up hmm. and just practice negotiating yeah. and practice any one of these tactics or strategies outlined in the book. Yeah. Else well, to practice on. I mean, even if you're, even if you're working with, you know, large teams, um, unless you're in an environment where that's mostly your job is negotiating, like these like inflection conversations will happen once every few months, sure. perhaps or things like that. And we don't really actually have enough occurrences when it matters, when you're like at a heated table yep. to, to have your defaults to fall back to and having them be really strong. Yep. So I actually think that doing that exactly so, like call up Comcast, call up yeah. AT&T, call, you know, call all these places and, and try and renegotiate and then do that for the sake of yep. the negotiation experience. I try to take every, every possible opportunity to negotiate and not necessarily about monetary things. But since I started thinking really hard about how negotiation will play into my career path for many years to come, we just don't have enough opportunities to practice it in a high-stake environment. Yeah. So one of the things that you mentioned about the book being very tactic-heavy yes. that you appreciated, I also really appreciated that. And I have like, oh, and there's this tactic, and there's that <laughs> tactic, and oh, this is really interesting. So I wanted to talk about a couple of those just on a, sure. a smaller level here. So one of the biggest things that he talks about is these calibrating questions. The calibrating questions around how to establish some kind of norm between the two of you, mm -hmm. um, or the, between the two parties. And one of the fascinating things that he describes is that any question that starts with the word how, or any question that starts with the word what will have an explanation answer. And so because you frame the question around, I need an explanation here, you kind of force the other person to get into figure out and think on their feet and explain mode. And this is a point, he makes this near the end of the book, right? Yeah, it's a bit of a, a theme from, I'd say like, yeah, maybe two thirds of the way through. Okay, yeah. Yeah. And the, the calibrating questions. So I think that's just so beautiful to have that just to hang your hat on like, oh, I can start with this word. If I start with how or I start with what, mm -hmm. it's going to put the other person in a position of thinking about how to explain something. Mm -hmm. And he explicitly points away from like, don't ask a question that starts with do or does. He cautions against why and things like that. And I'm like, these are so tangible and so easy right. that you can just start a sentence, how sure. and like something sure. will come out of your mouth. And I just it's something I think you could almost like on your desk, you'd have like a sticky of how. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and so it's like, oh, yeah, what's that word again that I'm supposed to start questions with? Right, exactly. How? Okay. How? And then just avoiding avoiding do's and does questions because they're always going to have single word answers, mm -hmm. like yes or no or five or 12 or right. things like that. My mother actually taught me as a child, we had a particular friend coming and staying with us for a few days and she was very, very quiet and very introverted. And we couldn't talk to her. And I was like, mom, I don't know what to do. And she's like, ask a question that requires multiple words to answer. So we like tried sure. coming up with these questions that wouldn't have a yes or a no or a number answer or anything like that. And I remember thinking about how to come up with these questions and trying for a while and it actually we got okay at it. But no one ever said like, ask a question that starts with how, you know, and that's right. just so just much easier. Simple, sure. Yeah. yeah. A little tip. Yeah. So I really appreciated that. Um, one of the other things that I felt was a similarly really simple tip that I've started using in my work now is the uh, power of the mysterious odd number. Oh yeah. Do you, yeah, you yeah, remember yeah. I like this one. Super fascinating. So what is it, Anna Marie? Right. So the more round a 
number is, like 500,000 or 20 million or things like that, the more round a number is, the more it feels like, eh, that's an estimate. That's right. a movable number. Right. You just kind of like came up with that. It could be like plus or minus 180,262. Right. Yeah. And so th those kinds of things feel very uh, fudgeable almost versus an odd number feels like, ah, oh, if this is 7586, yeah. that's a very meaningful number that you came up with with a lot of reasons, a lot of rationale, and you probably divided it by something. And they're like, this is the actual number it has to be. And so even just using an odd number when you're describing something that you make up or like an anchor point that you want to set in the negotiation makes the other person innately and very subconsciously think about it's an legit. immovable. It's like, immovable. This is legit. Yeah. yeah. So I started using this around estimates oh, okay. for product estimates. And nice. it's something where I had something come up and they're like, ah, oh, it's going to be six weeks of work, maybe like five and a half, maybe six, maybe a little bit more than six. I'm like, yeah. okay, great. My team gives me this estimate. Well, we have a big board where we track all of our projects and we have regular meetings with leadership about when engineers are going to roll on and off various initiatives. And so I was like, okay, this is going to be done on the 27th. That's a day. It's technically it's a Thursday of the week between when they said they think it's going to be done. And that is, it's an anchor point that I know that my team did a lot of, at like, as much estimating work as they can do to come up with that number and things are always going to like move forward and back and you got to be willing to deal with that but for right now the 27th is the most reasonable number that we can put on the board and I don't want people being like oh is it really this much time is it really going to be a little more is it going to be a little less sure. and it worked it was super effective we came up in the meeting it was the estimate was a little bit longer than we were anticipating as an org and uh, I remember the head of product was like is it, is it is that is that really that's when it's going to be done I'm like yes that is the estimate they've like put a lot of work into getting that estimate and that is the estimate he's like okay and then did you find so with that 27, was that calculated based off of it being 37 days? From... Yeah, exactly. It's like the 27th okay. of the month. So it was going to be like, what is five and a half working weeks or it was six, what's six working weeks from today? Like, mm -hmm. okay, well, it's like the 28th. Well, I'm going to say the 27th. That's slightly more like odd number anchoring. The idea is the estimate is what date they're going to be able to roll off and saying like sometime this week is very different from saying this day. Yeah. That's an odd number that's like been calculated. Yeah. So one of Voss's core ideas is that negotiation is really about getting to the emotional side of things and to not be pragmatic and analytic around like how and what are you going to split the difference of what it is that you're trying to negotiate for and to really get to like lizard brain kind of stuff with people that you're having a negotiation with. And one of the things that he talks about is how people will often have emotions that present very differently than the actual underlying emotion. Hmm. A bunch of the tactics that he goes over are ways to sort of uncover those underlying emotions. He gives an example of there's a holiday party and there's a grandfather there and he's really grumpy and he's kind of like cranky grandpa, kind of ruins the party. But it turns out if you actually went and talked to grandpa, he's actually just sad because everyone, you know, forgot his birthday was last week or nobody offered to cook him his favorite meal again or something like that happened. And so it turns out he's actually sad, he's not grumpy. And so in negotiation, you should always try to understand, okay, what is the actual underlying emotion? Because if you were to try to sort of treat or deal with the presenting emotion, it will have no effect and you will not actually be able to like empathize and create a strong bond with the person who you're negotiating with. And so for me, I thought this one sort of rang true to me. I had a experience with someone who I had hired on a part-time basis where they were working on this project and the work wasn't getting done. And so we sat down and, and had a discussion about it 
And I start it by doing one of the uh, tactics that Voss talks about is labeling. Labeling is where you say things like, it seems like, and then you sort of label an emotion that you, that you believe the person is experiencing, or it looks like, label something again. And so I did that with this woman. I was like, it seems like you're unsure of how to do this part. And it looks like you're working really hard on this, but you're unhappy with the progress that you're making. It was really helpful I, using these questions. And at the beginning, she was sort of like, before we got into it, she was like, oh, you know, I'm just really busy and I haven't had time. And like, that's why it's not getting done. And I will work to like better organize my calendar. And she was, you know, asking me for time management advice and that type of thing. Um, but then as we went through this process, she ended up telling me, she was very embarrassed because she didn't actually understand what I was asking her to do. Oh, interesting. And so, yeah, and so she didn't want to admit that she didn't understand. And part of it was what I had hired her for was exactly that. Hmm. And then, so I've hired her for this like specific skill. And then when I actually tasked her to do that skill, it turns out that my understanding of that topic hmm. was actually, I was more expert in it than she was. Hmm. And then she felt really embarrassed to tell me like, you hired me to do X and looks like uh, I don't know how to do X. Yeah. And so it was only through this, like me trying to like get to the like emotional core of what was going on and fluff away this like, oh, you know, like I'm busy and I'm sorry, I'm bad at time management. and all get better at it mm. that I was actually able to understand oh you just don't understand and then it was really nice we sort of shifted it into a she was like you know but at the same time like I love how you're doing it like it's so great like I can learn so much this is a really great opportunity for me to like if you can just like sit with me and mm. walk me through it a little bit I'll be able to do it I know I can but okay but if I hadn't spent the time to actually figure out is she really just bad at time mm. management or mm -hmm. is there something else here yeah that's such a beautiful insight I don't think I've I've been trying to use the labeling of it seems and it looks mm -hmm. like and I think I've done that to some success in terms of just general emotional rapport. Mm -hmm. But I haven't had like that kind of breakthrough where it's like, oh, there's this whole other layer of yeah. something going on, which yeah. is obviously very often the case. Yeah, exactly. I think that, I mean, and again, this is one of those beautiful tactics where it's like this exact chisel of starting a sentence with it looks like yeah. X, Y, Z is happening. It seems like you feel... ABC yep. can really uncover some of those deeper layers. And I'm, yeah, I'm, that's impressive. Yeah, no, it was, yeah, it, I mean, it worked, it worked out. And it was, it was, again, it was something that at the time I didn't really, this was probably, I don't know, maybe a year ago. I hadn't read the book yet, but in reading it, I was like, oh yeah, that works. Hmm. I've done that, check, suggest that for other people. If you're seeing these emotional behaviors and you don't quite understand, then if you can use the it seems mm -hmm. to try to make some sort of like throws in the dark around what you think is happening, the person will reciprocate with giving you more clarity and sort of precision around how they're actually feeling. Mm -hmm. So I mentioned earlier a little bit about psychological rapport, emotional rapport, and I think that's mm -hmm. one of the things that came through really crystal clear to me in this book, that so much of negotiation, which is just communication when it comes down to it, so much of negotiation is about developing space for the other person and mm -hmm. being able to kind of feel them and see through them and understand them. And I just keep thinking about the ways in which developing psychological safety with your team and like providing the space for all of them to work in a healthy environment is just absolutely mandatory for people to be able to openly express where they're coming from. I know this is one of my pet, one of my pet topics, mm -hmm. psychological safety yes. here, yes. but I love it. Yes. Um, what is psychological safety, Anna-Marie? What is psychological safety? So psychological safety is feeling that you are emotionally taken care of mm. within an environment to the point where you can express doubts or failings or any reservations that you have, any concerns you have, frustrations, you know, the whole spectrum of your emotional experience without being concerned for like being kicked out of that club right. or how are people going to take this? It's just a, a deep level 
level of openness that's mm-hmm. available in a team. So one of the things that he talked about was this unconditional positive regard. Do you remember that topic? I do not remember that one. So unconditional positive regard is a concept that was pioneered by Carl Rogers, a psychologist in the early 1900s. And it's a theory that he developed around how most of the regard and appreciation that we get from people in our life is conditioned upon a certain behavior. You got good grades, therefore yay. Or like you did well here, therefore you get an ice cream or things like that. Mm -hmm. Carl Rogers talks about this point at which someone feels that the regard you feel for them is unconditional is the moment at which they stop having to feel like they have to present their best self at all times. Mm. And so I think a lot about the fact that when you're working in product development, it's kind of messy and it should be kind of messy and you should be free to make mistakes Mm -hmm. in that environment. But if you feel like other people's regard for you is predicated on your success or like you being really intelligent all the time or having great design or things like that, it's a little bit debilitating Mm -hmm. and it it makes it harder for you to work at your utmost. Mm -hmm. That concept really stuck out to me, unconditional positive regard. So does he give any examples then around how to like mitigate against that when you are in a situation where you're making mistakes and potentially like eroding regard? Yeah, so he he talks about the the five stages of crisis negotiation. Mm -hmm. This is canonical FBI crisis negotiation. So you, you move from active listening to deep empathy to building rapport to being able to develop some sort of influence and then the fifth and final stage is like they have a behavior change Mm. and things like that so you do start from this like really deep level of who are you what do you believe why do you believe that Mm -hmm. and then being able to like move from that into this deep empathy of understanding what it could mean to feel that way Mm -hmm. and then using that common understanding to build a rapport with that person and then once you have that rapport then you can move into an influence stage Mm. and so I think especially in terms of product management where you're not in a you're not in a managerial position, but you do want to be in an influencing position. Getting those first three stages down with your team is really important and can take a lot of time. Even, I mean, it it, it kind of confuses me the way people move jobs so quickly in Silicon Valley, because I wonder, you know, Uh, if you move jobs in a year and a half, like how much time did you have to develop that base from which to influence effectively? Mm -hmm. It's, it takes a lot of groundwork, even, I mean, working with some of the same people for months on end, it's starting to like really layer up and Mm -hmm. feel, feel really good. Yeah. And it it is interesting how that basically, I mean, to, from a high level, it sounds like very, very similar to psychological safety. Like the two yeah. theories are basically um, the same. And yeah, if this term psychological safety sounds familiar, it was the big learning from the Google OB piece that came out maybe like a year ago about how OB organizational behavior, how Google has the title something like high performing teams or yeah, high uh, output teams maybe. Yeah, or? they like did this like year or multi-year study mm-hmm, around multi-year. what the best performing teams at Google looked like and they found that the outcome was that this a high degree of psychological safety was highly correlated to successful teams. Much more correlated than any individual member's success over yeah. time historically yeah. or anything like that. Anything, it's d- yeah. Definitely not the sum of its parts. It's yeah. A team is determined by its psychological safety. Yeah. So yeah, that I thought that was really fascinating and I've, I've been thinking a lot about that in ways to, to start with active listening mm-hmm. and then build from there into like this sense of empathy and doing a lot of that mirroring, doing mm-hmm. a lot of the labeling, it seems, it seems those kinds of things Mm -hmm. and then eventually from there building up some like mutual rapport um, from whence you can influence. One of my favorite tactics that I came across in the book was the idea of an accusation audit. 
And so an accusation audit is where you list out all of the terrible things that could potentially happen, all of the really scary, worst ever things that the other party could say about you, about the situation, and you basically jump in and say them before they have a chance to. And so you're basically disarming them. They're, they have all these like things that they think are bombs that they're gonna you know, throw into the conversation later. And you're basically like, no, like I'm just gonna put them out there, get them out on the table, and therefore they will, they will lose their power because of it. One of the other things that is interesting with this book is that he talks about how negotiating, oftentimes where it's most valuable to you as a person is in your professional space. You're in negotiations all the time as well with people in your family, personal life. There's a ton of negotiations happening all of the time. I had a negotiation recently, a personal one. I did this accusation audit at the beginning. One of the more positive ways that this can go is it'll lead to the other person saying, that's right which in the book he talks about how powerful that is because it hints at this like you've actually understood them and they believe that you understand them and so they'll say that's right. And so to be clear, this is an accusation audit that you do verbally with the other person there. Like yeah. it's not something that you do as preparation or Correct. something. Like it's Correct. part of your yeah. conversation. So as you're talking to them, you lay them all, you're like, there's this and this could go wrong. And you would think that this would happen and all these horrible bad things would happen. And so I used an accusation audit. It led to the person giving me a that's right statement. He also talks about the power of that's right and that humans have this innate urge to like, to exhibit socially constructive behavior, hmm. the more the person the, the more understood you feel and the more positively affirmed that you are. And so I, unfortunately though, so I was in this situation, I did the accusation audit. I was able to like lay a bunch of these like huge bombs out on the table. The other person gave me like a couple that's right. So there was like, yes, we understand each other. There's like clarity here, blah, blah, blah. But then unfortunately it was a personal situation and it, it ended up being like a fairly important one <laughs> that caused me to just like, I just kind of freaked out emotionally basically. Mm -hmm. And I was just like, can't handle it. And so I was like, I did really well for the first like 10 minutes. <laughs> and then it kind of got super intense and then, you know, blind to like, what am I supposed to do next? And like, mm -hmm. what's the next step? And mm -hmm. like, where do I go from here? But it but it kind of started off well. Yeah. And I was able to see, I was like, oh, I get how this could work. Yeah. So that was really, really interesting. Have you, have you done an acquisition well, audit? So I haven't done one yet. Uh, okay. There's so there's a couple things that that you mentioned there that I wanted to touch on. So sure. first of all, it's the the that's right. You talk about and, yep. and he talks about the how it's um, it is almost a gift. Like when the right. other person says that's right, they give you a that's right statement, mm -hmm. which has demonstrated that you've reached this point of understanding where they're coming from. Yep. And again, along Voss's like beautiful little tactics, one of the things that I loved is him explaining the difference between hearing that's right and hearing you're right, mm -hmm. and how when you hear someone say you're right. It can feel like that means that they agree that you understand them. Mm -hmm. But usually what it means is they're like distancing themselves. They're trying to say that, okay, like, you know what's going on. They don't actually mean you know what's going yep. on. It's their way of like they're saying- They're like placating They're you. placating yep. you. Yeah, yep. they want kind of out a yep. little bit. They want to just like make you feel assuaged and it's yep. not really a, an actual agreement, which is fascinating. Like, yep. that's right, you're right. So similar. And I've been paying attention to that and noticing those that's rights moments just in the day-to-day -day working experience. And when I hear a you're right, mm -hmm. I kind of stick in that conversation a little bit longer until mm -hmm. I can find out like where we get to a that's right kind of situation, mm -hmm. even if we don't get an exact that's right. But the you're sure. right usually to me signals now, oh, you might want to stay here for a little while and make sure that everyone's actually agreeing. I do think it's pretty accurate okay. that you're right is a signal that people are not mm -hmm. agreeing. Okay. I've also found it, it's often a signal that people haven't listened, like they physically actually didn't uh. hear the words. <laughs> 
your right is like so almost just like nodding yeah. like along yeah. it's like the human mm-hmm, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh, you're right yeah and so i think it's almost a default like yeah they, they didn't hear they didn't listen or they actually disagree and they don't want to get too engaged in it so then when you've heard a you're right what what has been your reaction to hearing yeah. a you're right so my reaction is okay before i move on i thought we were going to move on to the next section of the meeting or we were going to close the meeting down or you were going to go back to your desk i was going to go back to mine you know what whatever that was going to happen and i kind of like throw on the brakes gently and kind of stay in I mean, whatever that conversation was mm-hmm. until I feel like we've figured out what's going on. Most of the time, it's they literally did not hear. So then <laughs> do you typically, so you'll just go back and restate what you had said? Will you say it slightly differently? Oh, definitely Will differently. you do yeah. like anything else that you'll actually do differently? Yeah, that's, I mean, that's a challenging question to like recall exactly. Yeah. Um, so the one thing that I've, I've seen recently that I think is just really beautiful is asking the other person to say back, like mm-hmm. what is it you, th- you heard? Mm-hmm. So I've used this. Okay, so what, what is it that you just heard or like what did we just agree on or something like that sure and Voss even talks about how at the end of the day when you've made your negotiation you've like reached your agreement it means nothing if you don't have an execution plan right and you define the execution plan by listing it out three times mm. blah, blah 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 do you agree and they say yes and you're like and by the way remember how we agreed to this and they say yes and like you want to get them to say yes <laughs> three, three times, times. Okay. and that's how you know it's the real yes okay which is very classic negotiating advice so I'll ask okay so what do we just agree upon and then super awkward when you ask someone what yeah. you just agreed upon and they're like, and they don't um, know. <laughs> can we just, can you repeat it? And I'm like, okay, cool. So then I go back and like rephrase it and sure. like pull out a particular piece that might have added some complication and like discuss that one separately or something like that. So it reminds me also, I had a very similar situation where during my MBA, I had this big group project and I was running the meeting and there was a guy there who was kind of just like nodding along. He was like on his laptop, blah, blah, blah. Mm, I hate that. Um, <laughs> yeah. But so that's my question is it's like when you're doing this, so if you ask this person in this meeting gives you a you're right you're trying to get a confirmation three times. Have you found any ways to do it that's not really awkward to be like, you weren't listening? Because <laughs> <laughs> that's because it's like, that's what it is. If it's like, if they really weren't listening, if you said like, so what are we, what did we agree to? And they're literally like, uh, I don't know. Like, yeah. it's kind of awkward to bring that up. It's so awkward. Yeah. Uh, this happens. I mean, it happens all the time. Yeah. Like, people, it's, it's really people hard. People zone out all people the time. People zone out. It's yeah. totally, it, that happens. It's totally yeah. reasonable. So I, I have no tips on that. Yeah. So I'd love to hear if you have any. <laughs> I have so many tips. Uh, I have a lot of different tactics here. And it depends on who the person is and what my relationship is with them. Sure. And then also, it depends on who else is in the room. Right. So if I'm in an environment with just two other people and one of them was zoning out, sometimes I'll be a little bit more explicit of, hey, you know, you weren't paying attention. Like. Sure. Anyone who's been in a meeting with me will say, oh yeah, Anna-Marie is always like, hey, let's put our laptops down, everybody. Right. And I tend to start meetings by saying, okay, everyone, unless you're taking notes, like let's all close our laptops. In exchange, I will make sure that this is the fastest meeting it can be and mm-hmm. no faster. And like, I'll ensure that we all get out of here in a reasonable time, hopefully very early. So if there are very few people in the room or if there's a lot of rapport with those people, I'll be a little bit more explicit about it. Sure. When it's a larger environment, or especially if someone's like reporting org is in the room, like mm-hmm. if someone's manager is the room and the person I want to call out, like yeah. their manager watches them yeah like that I don't want to do that yeah I really don't want to do that so a lot of times I'll make a more general statement when I see a specific even if I see a specific person who needs to be a part of this conversation has zoned out mm-hmm. I'll just like look around the room at large and say hey everyone like this is gonna be really interesting this next point and then reiterate it perhaps mm-hmm. sure um, and then give that person kind of a gracious out right. to like join the conversation <laughs> again without looking right because the last thing that you want to do is make someone feel bad yeah if you make them feel bad they're gonna dislike you yeah. It's not going to be productive for the environment. So I do also try to be just like funny. Like there's some people where I'll be like, all right, people, let's close our laptops. Yeah. <laughs> or like, you know, just like a funny voice sure. or something, like anything to diffuse the attention. Sure. Yeah. There's just a ton of different strategies okay. there. 
So the other thing that you mentioned I wanted to, to call out is you said that the first 10 minutes was really effective. Mm -hmm. And then after that point, emotions kind of kicked in more yeah. so and like it was a little frazzling. It brings up a particular point that I loved that he made, which was the when the pressure is on, you will not rise to the occasion. You will fall to your highest level of preparedness. Right. I thought that was a really beautiful quote because we think of ourselves as like, oh, yeah, you know, I did some preparation and I'll just get better in the moment. But mm -hmm. in the moment, you will never get better. You will only ever be as good as much as you prepare for it mm -hmm. and it takes it takes so much preparation yeah. for a lot of these times of conversations yeah. which is I mean back to your earlier point I think it's one of the reasons why it's really important to practice negotiating at every turn that you can so that you have that layer of preparedness around some of these tactics mm -hmm. yeah no one of the one of the points that I wanted to bring up later is just like mental state and being able to stay calm I think it's really difficult again depending on I mean if it's a personal thing like some of those things can be like really heavy and they're really mm -hmm. tough and there's a bunch of baggage and like history attached to them. How do you just like do it more often? How do you up the frequency so that you have more opportunities to practice it and mm. get better at it in a low stress state so that when you're in a stress state, you can you at least have the basics down. Mm. I think one of the other things that he talks about that I also really enjoyed on this same idea is he speaks to embracing all of the small conflicts in your life. Mm. And he's like, you're going to have conflicts every day. Oftentimes, I'm assuming he's talking about like North American, American American culture. Huh. I don't remember where, this at all. Where, yeah, it's at the very end. And mm -hmm. so at the very end, he talks about how we're, as a society, sort of always just want to say yes and don't want to like cause too many like problems. Mm -hmm. And he is like, no, like don't be afraid of conflict. And how he, what he suggests instead is he says, navigate conflict with empathy. Mm -hmm. I was like, huh. I was like, yeah, like that, that makes a lot of sense. And he says that like a lot of us have this little voice in your head that's like, just get along with everybody. Like just nod and go along with it. It. like mm. it's it's easier that way mm. like don't get into a little conflict it's not worth it mm. like it's a small thing and he's sort of sure but that leads to the subtitle of the book which is like or no sorry the, the main title of the book which is like splitting the difference and splitting the difference often is not optimal outcome it's the lowest risk it's the least creative and if you're not willing to sort of deal with that conflict a little bit you're not going to get to a really creative potentially you know uncovering value that doesn't exist mm. you know on the ledger that you can split 50 50. Yeah. That final point around, yeah, mental state and the capacity to stay calm, sort of like I think he sort of umbrellaed it out into a bunch of bigger things like societal issues and people and how we choose to like live our lives that I thought were really important. Related to that, I was in another negotiation, was in another personal negotiation where it was really difficult. The person said something and it was like a really jarring comment. And my, my gut reaction was to like lash out and say something mm. really strong and powerful. Mm. And then I sort of was able to quickly do the mental math around like, what's the value if I say something here? Mm. And it was very obvious, all negative. <laughs> <laughs> there is no, nothing to be gained by saying anything here, Sandy. Yeah. And so the mental like fortitude around being able to like exist and have like a process that you're running through, you know, think of all of these mm. questions and think, you know, oh yeah, I have to be silent after I do that. Mm. And like, oh, I need to like do this here. But on top of that, there's also sometimes just you're in this situation, this person, he talks about people throwing bombs at you yeah. and people will throw bombs at you. And sometimes the best thing is to actually not do anything back. Yeah. And so the like the various like levels of experience that you need to like run a strong negotiation mm -hmm. is pretty, it's pretty intense. I mean, being calm enough to be silent. Yeah. Like I noticed that that's, I mean, I'm not sure if it's just because I'm a very outspoken, outgoing person, but my innate reaction when there's a lull in conversation yeah. is to 
fill it. Yeah. Like to jump right on in and cannonball that. Let's add some conversation to this silence. And I found that being silent is one of the strongest things you can say. And that's that's something that I've been practicing for quite some time. It was, Mm -hmm. I mean, it was a big part of my my salary negotiation piece was like learning how to become silent. Say a thing, know that that's the thing you want to say, nothing else. And then let it sit there. And it feels like time stretches out (laughs) infinitely (laughs) in that moment. But it doesn't actually feel that way on the other end. And, you know, it's okay. So I had that exact situation happen for like what's probably the biggest, like one of the one of the biggest like formative conversations around my whole company, which was a fundraising discussion. Mm. I knew I should not say anything. And it was so diff- I was like waiting for the other person to give that number. And I just had to sit there <laughs> and not say anything. It was like gut wrenching. I was just like, don't say anything. Don't say anything. Don't say anything. <laughs> they happen like that. But like I wouldn't have been able to have done that had I not practiced that previously. Yep. Oh, comes back to practice. Yep. 100%. One thing I was thinking about as I was reading this book is where are all the places, like, what levels do I negotiate? Um, what in my life, um, specifically in my role as a product manager? And I came up with these these five categories of negotiation that I engage upon. Um, and so I just wanted to kind of throw these out at you and, mm-hmm. and t- chat about it a little, for a little bit. Sure. Um, so the first category is negotiation within the team. So within a project team, you have various functional roles that have competing interests. Like the designers might want some more time for some iterations, or they might want to invest more in some animations or things like that, where engineering could get hung up on the scope creep. So those kinds of things. Or like maybe just last week where we needed to re-release an experiment because we had to pull it back and do some changes. Mm -hmm. And it was ready to go back out, but it had the same experiment name. Mm. So we were in a situation where either our engineer on the project could redeploy the experiment. So you'd have to like rename it, add that to the code base, do a whole deploy process. Mm-hmm. Or the analysts afterwards would have to like trim out the data from the first few days and like we wouldn't get to use any of our default experiment reporting structures because that first few days of data and then turning it off and then back on, it would like have muddled everything up. And so like neither team is incentivized to do that because the other team can like make it easier for them. Sure. And so like negotiating in those environments. So like within the team. So that's category one. And the second one is negotiating for my team within mm-hmm. the org. Mm. And so when I go into like these these Monday meetings where we talk about uh, staffing requirements across the whole org and mm-hmm. every initiative lead will stand there and talk about what their project teams have upcoming and how much staffing they need for that. And so there's there's a little bit of like inter-org negotiating on behalf of your team. Mm-hmm. And then the third category is on your behalf of your org within the company. So at Microsoft, you know, we have Yammer as a, as a product here, but we also integrate with Outlook and SharePoint and things like that. Sure. And so being able to negotiate for like things that are going to work well for Yammer that are going to require work on behalf of Outlook is something that some of the other PMs do more of, the ones specifically up in Redmond in Seattle. Sure. But that's definitely something that I know will be part of my work eventually. And then the fourth category is on behalf of my company with other companies. And I've done a little bit of this with any integration work that you do. Anytime you're ever working with a PM in another company and you're trying mm-hmm. to like, everyone's always passing that back and forth in terms of like, well, if you guys can just put some more work into your API, that would be easier for us. But like, well, if you just do more custom work on your side, we don't right. have to do anything <laughs> on our API. And so there's always like this tension there. But I think this like kind of crescendoing tier and then the fifth and final one is is for myself mm. is for you know my salary negotiation or promotion conversations and things like that and so I think about the ways that these tactics come into all of those different areas and how there's a lot of different opportunities to practice in different different parts of it mm-hmm. and then have you found that there's any very clear differences around like the types of tactics that are easier to use at certain stages or that are higher leverage or have you found sort of like if they've clustered at all 
Yeah. The ones where you're more intimately engaged with people on a day-to-day basis and you can get, you can really lay down the foundations to get to know them, mm-hmm. those kind of clusters. So that's like within the teams and then also within the org on behalf of my team. Because these are people that you work with day in and day out and really putting down the effort to get to know these human beings and see life through their eyes pays dividends throughout. So that kind of clusters in that way. And it really makes me appreciate the team offsites, oh, you know, okay. and things like that. I mean, I used to look from the outside and I was like, oh, tech companies with their like, <laughs> we're going to you know, go-karting. Cheesy parties. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I was like, go-karting on a Tuesday. Yeah. <laughs> like, how is that making your like company any better? Yeah. But from the inside, it, it, I mean, it just pays dividends for years. Being able to really understand someone outside of a work context. Sure. And see, like, we, we did a, an Iron Chef competition and watching, like, oh. which of us were the most competitive and, like, running and grabbing yeah, the yeah, ingredients. Yeah. And who has, like, a lot of chefing experience and that's right. part of their full self. And, right. like, understanding that was really beautiful. And I definitely have found, like, more depth in our project team's interactions sure. after these kinds of experiences. So then what do you think? So if that, because uh, I think that's interesting. And I guess my question is, what does that mean for the other types of negotiations where, you know, you're dealing with like someone at another company where mm-hmm. you're doing an integration? Does that mean you should have dinner with them? Yeah. So I, y- y- that's not scalable, mm. right? So insofar as you're you're working in the way, especially when you, you spoke earlier about how you'll work with someone at one point and then again in a year, yeah. right? And so you have to do a lot of work immediately to like identify the situation. What are they doing? If I push this way, if I mirror this way, do they mirror back? Like what's, or you know, who's listening to whom in what way? And those kinds of things, like those skills, I think are really important to build up so that you can do them quickly. Mm-hmm. Right. So when you walk into a room, you can start assessing like what's going on with this other person and like, can I get into their shoes as quickly as possible? Sure. Um, so I think those kind of cluster and those are like the there's these really prototypical skills around like things like anchoring, like being able to throw out numbers and anchor and like you can do that at any level. Mm-hmm. But being able to practice on a slower, regular cycle with people that you see on an ongoing basis will help you get better and faster at the ones that you're just going to have to walk into the room, sure. figure out what's going on as quickly as possible and like start communicating. Sure. And you know, iterate as much as you can. Yeah. One quick point that I, again, it was one of these ones where I was like, oh yes, I have used that and it is really powerful and I like it, is he talks about normative leverage. Normative leverage. Do you remember this? He talks about three different types of leverage. Yeah. It was normative, what was the I don't one? remember what the other two are. <laughs> <laughs> All I remember is normative leverage. Okay. I'm going to guess the other one are positive and negative. I think it's positive and negative. Yeah, yes, okay. I'm pretty sure, but I, don't, I didn't remember the normative. <laughs> I had to make a guess. <laughs> Good um, so normative leverage is interesting. You describe a world and the norms that define that world, and you choose things that you know the other person will sort of agree to, mm. and then it gives you power to further use that world and that framing for your argument. So you've predefined mm. a world and how it exists. You get the other person to buy into it so then when you apply that frame to the outcome that you want they've already agreed like Mm -hmm. oh yeah that is like x makes sense there and y makes sense there and they've literally said these things to you and then you can use that to argue for whatever it is that you want Mm -hmm. so like you can go in and you can say like you know i think of in my case an example would be i think of my company as x category and then you get the other person be like yes you are x category Mm -hmm. and like i think of my company to be like you know characteristic b 
characteristic C. Mm -hmm. And then you're sort of slowly, slowly scoping over to some sort of known world that you believe that you exist in that has certain characteristics. So like, again, in a fundraising conversation, it would be like if you scope yourself into this world of like the, the value of companies that live there are X, then when you drop a number that sits in that world, the person person can't then be like, oh, well, I didn't actually mean it when I said that I think your characteristic Uh, A, B, and C. And so it's this way to, you like construct this world, you lead them along this little narrative, you choose like these proof points and characteristics that you know they will agree to and then sort of build this lattice Mm. that that exists to then support sort of what your actual ask is. And so you can use normative leverage is like a good way to build up, yeah, this like lattice that you'll then basically use when you are anchoring. Hmm. Because then your anchor is sort of like solidified in this lattice that the person has has already like opted into. They've like, yeah, yeah, like they, they built, built it, it with you. Yeah. That's a really good. He he talks. I mean, yeah, the normative leverage thing. He I think he only gives it like it's just a at paragraph the very, yeah, the in very the book end too. But I found it to be something that yeah for me was like really I've I've used it like on several occasions to to get people when you you sort of yeah. go in and you're like I'm unsure like if maybe they're very like adversarial and they're like I have my perspective of the world mm-hmm. and you can use that because you can yeah. cherry pick yeah what things from their world relate to and. Exist in your uh, world. And then, like, bring them into your world that way. Yeah. And that's sort of like you know, leading them. It just it just seems like you didn't need to read the book, Sandy. <laughs> <laughs> you keep talking about oh I, I've been doing all these things since I, I was born. <laughs> Sandy Sandy, master negotiator. I do have an MBA. Maybe, yeah. maybe that's my sneaky MBA skills. Mas- mm, yeah. <laughs> So let's uh, so let's wrap this up. So a little wrap, yeah. yeah. So what what do you think? Uh, so let's talk a little bit about what we who we think this this book is for. I mean, I think if you're communicating with anyone and trying to come up with trying trying to get to a decision with mm-hmm. anyone, because I mean, you you have no control. I mean, if you're working in a company, if you're doing product, you're clearly going to be involved with a bunch of different people with different backgrounds, different biases, different mm-hmm. like frames on how they see the world, and you're going to need to get agreement with people. Yeah, I have. I mean, my my description of this is literally everyone. Yeah, yeah. And then, I mean, it's also just kind of like a fun, like, oh, let's apply these to my personal life yeah. kind of book too. So I think, I mean, the the other thing I would sort of like side note, which he speaks to, which we haven't spoken to yet, is he talks about the, there's this one standard book that, again, like MBAs will read that's called Getting to Yes. Mm-hmm. And it's sort of the standard de facto, everyone, like when you take negotiation class in school, like it's like the textbook, the, the theories that are taught there are basically accepted as like industry standard he really doesn't like that book and he has very different thoughts yeah. on it yeah would you say if anyone reads that book they should read this book yeah or would you so say i think like i think books? like if you've read that book like yeah. you need to read this one yeah um, I absolutely so agree. if you've read that book and you're like oh i know enough about yeah. negotiation i would say like no you don't right this right. one is actually what you should have read. Yeah. I, I also think that if you, when you read this book, I think it makes sense to go and read that book as well, because there sure. are points that, I mean, he, he disagrees with a lot of things, but there's also stuff that he doesn't cover because right. it's in that book. Right. And there, I think it's just the two canonical books on negotiation right. now. Yeah. Or I can see this one becoming canonical yeah. for sure. Yeah. Because it's so new. I mean, negotiation is, is moving towards an agreement. And yep. for anyone who agrees yeah. in their life. <laughs> 
probably read the book. You should probably read the book. Yeah. There's a lot of tactics. There's a lot of stuff to wade through in terms of like, there's just, oh my God, there's like 35 different like yeah. unique tactics yeah. that I just so much to think about, but everyone's going to take something out of it. Yeah. There are a bunch of, the format is a little, um, it is a little like how to-y. Mm-hmm. Um, and so depending on the type of book that you enjoy reading, just sort of have that front of mind as you mm-hmm. start to read it. But otherwise, I, I think you are also able to sort of extract. I think we were able to kind of extract some like higher level yeah. overarching themes and ideas for sure and even without that i think there's there's so much just goody goody meat in it so then what about rating what's your rating i gave it four out of five ponies four out of five ponies okay i think i'm also a four you're a four pony i'm also a four ponies maybe with a rainbow mane and yeah it's like a fancy four yeah it's just like a little yeah yeah a little yeah little little bit of a fancy four yeah i think if, if i had seen more structure in the book mm. and stuff. I mean, he talks about us at the beginning. He's like, this book is going to build upon itself as it goes. Right. And so it, it is true. These are like crescendoing tactics. Yep. If I'd seen more of here is category A, category B, and category mm. C, and then I'll wrap it all up and like sure. things fit, I'm probably pushed up towards like a 4.5. Sure. But um, without those hooks to kind of like navigate through the book, yeah. I'd say yeah, solid four. I, I found even near the end, it felt like a little bit like, I'm just going to dump in a big list of like, oh, and then you can do this, and then you can do this, and then yeah. you can do this, or a bunch of tactics where it was clear that he like thought they should go in there but the organization yeah I agree was like a little bit not not amazing yeah that said four out of five ponies like any, anybody we should be happy with four ponies That's a lot. <laughs> yes a lot of ponies can pull a carriage I feel like you could pull a small carriage yeah, okay. like a child-sized carriage okay very good all right well thank you so much for joining us this was the clearly product book club podcast I'm Anna Marie and you can find me on Twitter tweet Anna Marie and I am Sandy McPherson. You can find me on Twitter at Sandy Mac, S-A-N-D-I-M-A-C. And be sure to subscribe on iTunes and check us out at Clearly Product. Clearly Product.